Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome, listeners. I'm joined by my long-distance guest over there in the evening time. I'm here in California morning. You're over there in Great Britain. It's Tom Hughes. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hi, Brad. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, We got connected through Simon Ward, which was a fantastic show uh, that I did uh, recently, and we exchanged some really interesting emails. And like I said just before we went on the air, I think we're going to go off and talk about an assortment of different interesting topics because of all the the fun stuff we've we've exchanged. But let's just start with... um, you telling the listeners what you do with your operation that's called Tri Mechanics. Okay, so yeah, so I um, predominantly it's a, a kind of running analysis service based in Leeds in the UK. Um, but to be honest, it kind of started off like that. And then over the last few years, it's kind of evolved into all these other different elements as I started to find out that you know, how people ran is more of a reflection of you know what they were doing part of their day job and whether they were sitting and whether they were driving and all those different elements, um, that it actually became more about trying to get people to, as I say, sit less and move a bit more, uh, work and things, and like think about the footwear and all those different elements, and then think about sleep and health and those things. So it's kind of spread out from there, really. But it does tend to predominantly focus on the kind of running side of things as a starting point, and that gives, I think, quite a good window into how people move, and then you kind of go on from there, really. Um, so that's why I predominantly do I'm working with kind of runners and, and triathletes, um, or basically all, all different kind of um, ranges are people that don't compete at all and people that are competing at really kind of high level and trying to get the, the last little drips of performance. Well, I think that's where uh, we initially got uh, sparked with some um, interesting conversation because I have such a passion for that, for learning uh, the proper running technique and how important that is to your efficiency as a runner, um, having gone through uh, my whole life basically as a runner and not really paying much attention to technique because it's such a simple, straightforward sport. And I think there's a lot of people out there. I don't think, I, I know because I, I, I witness races and watch the, the forms of the, uh, the runners coming through and you can see, um, such incredible dysfunction, uh, throughout the body where they're moving forward and they're, uh, they have a number on their chest, but there's all kinds of mechanical imbalances and postural problems and, apparent uh, muscle weaknesses and imbalances that I think, generally speaking, the endurance athlete community and especially the running community pay little attention to. They just lace up their shoes and head out the door. And I'm going to count myself as one of them because I just never spent that much time learning about technique. And I originally got super interested in this through the PrimalCon presentations of the uh, retired Olympic 1500-meter runner, Michael Stember, uh, who came out of Stanford and was exposed to uh, the great coaching there uh, with uh, Vin Lanana, you know, national-level runners, world-level runners. And he gave this incredible presentation where he demonstrated all the different uh, uh, optimal mechanical positions uh, that are required for maximum propulsive forward energy when you're running. And it was a real eye-opener, and I adopted a lot of those um, instruction into uh, my own presentation that I gave for years later. And uh, for people in the Primal Endurance Mastery course, if you look through the video library, you can see that there's uh, uh, unfairly weighted uh, emphasis on running technique, where there's probably a dozen videos or more where I'm going through all my favorite drills and why you do the drills. So, um, maybe we could talk uh, to the listeners here about 
why is technique so important on such a simple, straightforward sport like running? I mean, we're not talking about golf here. We're talking about running. Well, well that's the thing. I think that's what you just kind of hit now on the head there. You're, you've gone to things like something like golf. And obviously, we, were, we didn't evolve to play golf, but we did evolve to run because we evolved to be upright. We've got things like the, the nuchal ligament at the back of our neck that tells us that we were meant to run. We know now you know, that tribes not only used it for hunting, but I talked about running as a skill recently. And I talked about the fact that a lot of tribes and places still around the world use running as a form of transport. You know, if they want to get from one village to the next village, well, they might as well run because it's quicker and they can. And that's the thing is that actually running is this innate skill, but it is the kind of skill. And the way I describe it to people, and when I tell a kind of analogy of this, when I have a lot of these people in that have been, you know, uh, over the last 10, 20 years, they've been kind of chained to a desk and they've suddenly decided to start running again. That this is a little bit like if you were taught to write 20 years ago and then someone took away all the pens and gave you a keyboard. Now, you will then use that keyboard for the next 20 years. Now, the back part of your brain wouldn't forget how to run necessarily, but it might forget the kind of skill of it. And you've been given that pen again. And you have to have to kind of you know feel it, How have to kind of reinvigorate that uh, that pathway. So that's why and the problem we have. And I think this is. The epitome of this is if you watch uh, Lionel Sanders, the triathlete run in Kona this year or last year, should I say, you know, he, he's towards the end, particularly he's just enduring. He's running like he's been shot. You know, he's, he's all over the place. And that shows you that humans were designed to just keep moving. They bring in they can bring in a host of compensations to tr- just keep moving forward. They can switch off half the muscles. They can get fatigued. Yet we're designed that if that happens, we can just keep moving because if we had to, we had to get away from something or we had to move towards something and we couldn't worry about all those things having an impact. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. And no offense, brother, because Lionel Sanders is a top athlete. But um, I think it's OK to point out that even at the highest level, um, there are uh, technique inefficiencies that arguably could generate uh increases in performance. There was a guy that used to come on to the national marathon broadcast here in the U S and he had a laboratory where he emphasized the, um, you know, the wasted energy by assorted runners in the lead pack. And these were the Olympic, you know, top level marathon guys that were swinging their arms wildly from side to side or uh, going too vertical with every stride rather than optimizing their, um, you know, the, the, the balance between, um, taking off into the air and taking off forward. And it was, it was really interesting. So, um, yeah, then when you get tired, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you look at Lionel, he actually might be quite efficient. And it's the same way as you can have people, you know, you've got, I mean, swimming is the great thing is I, I talk a lot about the parallels between swimming and running. Cycling, in my mind, is a completely different game. So I talk to triathletes about they should think about running like they think about swimming. It's a skill-based thing. They should promote skill first. But also, it is interesting. If you look at the swimming, you know, kind of swimming history, I think it was Janet Evans, you know, people like that that have got, you know, ridiculously different swimming strokes and styles, but actually are as efficient as anyone else. So Lionel might be efficient because his body has got so used to those. He might not be quite as efficient as someone with a beautiful stride, but he's probably got quite efficient, which is why he doesn't want to change things. And I think he's probably right from that element. But and that's why the way that I think is slightly different is that I don't actually change anyone's running or say, right, run this way or that way. I look at them and think, and, and then we, we, we liken how they run, how they move to how they move in real life or you know, how they move when they're at work and whether they do all these things. And whether we can then 
kind of switch them certain muscles back on or try and encourage them to basically, you, you know, almost the brain to try and find those muscles again and then see whether they come through. And more often than not, that's actually, that really helps with the kind of injury side of things. But also it means that they don't get that kind of, they're not trying to force a change because the brain is this habit driven thing. It, it, it doesn't like being changed. And that's the thing, you know, I, I was saying about kind of barefoot running. And the reason I got into it was because it gives this sensory overload that enables the brain to change what it does for the better without forcefully changing it. If that, if that makes any sense. Well, you brought up a good point, and you mentioned Janet Evans really quickly, the great uh, distance swimming all-time world record gold medalist for America, coached uh, for a period of time by my friend Bud McAllister, who also coached me, and she was known for this distinctive windmill type of stroke where her arms were extended straight on her recovery rather than the beautiful bent elbows. But like you said, with her training and whatever uh, physical particular she had, she learned to swim very efficiently this way. And if you're setting the world records, it's hard to argue um, against, you know, what they're doing uh, very, uh, very strenuously. So uh, especially, and you, you mentioned golf briefly too, and uh, Christopher Smith, my, my uh, mentor, the greatest speed golfer of all time, who's um, been on the show as well. Um, he's a he's a noted teacher, and he tr- tries to uh, you know work with uh, the the recipe that the the student brings to the lesson tea rather than make them all swing perfectly like uh, you know a video uh, presentation. Uh, you try to go with your particulars and what feels right to you, and just optimize that rather than break everything down and try to be a robot. So um, even with running, y- you're right. You have those particulars where. Um, a certain person's going to look differently than someone else. Um, Paul Radcliffe, you know, greatest female marathoner, still holding the record, not even been approached in many years. And she looked like she was, uh, you know, screaming in pain from uh, someone whacking her uh, with every stride with her head bobbing all over the place. But obviously it didn't cost her a, a ton of efficiency because she learned to work with uh, whatever her, her technique was. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that, you know, we, we think maybe, you know, that, that head movement might have been counterbalancing something else. So it's kind of like they worked in you know, synergy together. And I think that's the thing is that but the, the key thing and the reason you know, kind of I, I ended up going down the kind of barefoot side of things as a training tool was that most modern shoes, because they put that barrier to that sensation, actually you know, inhibit the ability of the brain to, to kind of work out what's going on almost. And it, because it can't feel the ground because the shoes are they've got these big built up soles and motion control and all these things because they try and change that. They, the person can't kind of almost sense what's going on. They can't sense their kind of positions. The brain can't sense things. And therefore, that, that kind of learning process, that skill learning process, I mean, I describe it to people of like using the analogy of playing the guitar. If someone was to give you a guitar to kind of learn to play and then said, well, you've got an option. You can either play it with your bare hand or you can play it with a, a boxing glove on. Well, you know that which one you'd rather choose. And that's the thing is it's not to say that if you hadn't played the guitar for a long time, you didn't wouldn't have a good go at playing with a boxing glove. It's more that you wouldn't be able to learn the, the the intricate movements of the skill without that touch, without that feel. And that's where things like, you know, being barefoot can come in because they can, as a skill and a development, uh, rather than saying, you know, we should be running barefoot on, on tarmac and these things, which I don't necessarily agree with. But I think as a skill and a learning element, I think it can be so powerful. Yeah, I think um, it's... It's a point that we need to emphasize when we're talking about these wonderful padded, comfortable shoes and even people who have dabbled in 
the minimalist shoe and realize that it's not as comfortable of a ride, especially out of the gate when you're uh, taking away this, uh, this cushion that you've had your whole life. But what the drawbacks are of wearing that giant, cushy, comfortable shoe is that proprioception so that you can't identify those technique errors that are causing more pounding and jarring. And some of the research that um, we've covered in, uh, I believe we talked about it in the Primal Blueprint, that um, the impact trauma uh, throughout the lower extremities is worse when you're wearing the padded shoes because you can't tell that you're slamming your, your heel into the ground. Now, this is, this is my argument. But also the other thing, that I'm seeing something a little bit more worrying, to be honest, Brad. I'm actually, I, I see obviously a range of clients, a lot of clients that wear um, a certain brand of very maximalist shoe. And, you know, I'm looking at things in slow motion. So I'm seeing how things, and I'm, I'm seeing as people are coming to land, if their hips are, you know, relatively you know, not, I kind of call it instability in that they're normally crossing over a bit into the center because they're, they're lateral stabilizers, which are, cause a lot of problems for a lot of people, aren't really functioning. That cushy, that squidgy cushion is meaning they're all over the place. And as a result, they start getting knee problems and hip problems. And I'm seeing this, this trend of long-term, particularly tendinopathies, and particularly around the hamstring, around the hip, and problems around the knee, after people have been wearing these, these shoes for a few months. And the frustrating thing is they will, they will say to me, but it's not the shoes, they feel so comfortable. And I, and I say, well, yeah, I know they feel comfortable. You run down the, the first mile of the road, and they just feel like you're running on clouds. But have you noticed that your stride kind of shortens towards the end of a run or you, your hips start to ache a little bit or there's these little niggles start to come in? That shortening of your stride is your brain actually actively shutting things down because it can't control the instability. And that's the thing is that we've got this amazing thing. The foot, the foot is an incredible thing. It, it's, it's, it deforms the ground. It stabilizes. It balances. It does. It enables us to stabilize and balance on one foot as we're going on really quite fast. And then we put this thing underneath it that just throws it all off. And that's what it doesn't, you know, unfortunately, obviously related to the surfaces and things we run on, a lot of these shoes are kind of a bit of a necessity, but it's, it changes the way we kind of sense things. And I think that's the thing. But the, these shoes, and I won't mention the name, I nearly did, um, but they, they feel so comfortable. And I call it, the, my, my thing is I call it the chocolate brownie theory, is that a chocolate brownie may taste really, really good. But if you eat enough of them, then you're going to feel pretty rubbish about an hour later, if not sooner. Whereas good, healthy food might not initially spark that inside of the brain. I mean, for some people, um, I prefer those, that kind of food personally. But later on, you'll probably feel better because of it. You'll feel more energized. So it's playing with that human psychology as much as anything else. I think that's why this brand have really focused on that. They've almost they've gone down what you know the way the processed food is sold is to sell you that that initial hit and i think the, the, these brands are selling the same thing they're kind of selling this this idea of beautiful comfort we're not thinking about the the, the longer term consequences okay I'm, I'm with you on the chocolate brownie analogy man and the the uh, like like katie bowman says movement nutrition so if you're getting a lot of barefoot time or minimalist shoe experience you're getting uh, more nutrition for uh, your feet and building them stronger so they can uh, balance you better and eventually, overall, long-term, just like with healthy eating, um, you're going to have less impact trauma, uh, reduced injury risk because you're so efficient and, and light on your feet, in a sense. And I remember um, Barefoot Ted, uh, who used to come to our PrimalCon events and have his barefoot uh, 
uh, session. And the first thing he did was have everyone remove whatever shoes they were wearing and come over to hard cement and start jogging on hard cement, maybe for the first time in these people's lives. But what happens when you're forced to jog in bare feet on hard cement is that you become as light as a deer and you exhibit probably the best form you've ever exhibited in your whole life because of the severe penalty that you get from uh, from from running barefoot on cement. And so, you know, learning that lesson where you're all of a sudden implementing optimal technique, um, I, I think that really hit home with people where they realize that, yeah, this minimalist shoe thing, there is something to it and um, you can you can benefit from gradually transitioning over. So maybe I should ask, like, uh, the listeners interested, they're, they're buying this idea that, you know, the super padded shoes uh, aren't, aren't, the, aren't the end all. So how does one go about kind of uh, integrating a more barefoot experience into their overall lifestyle as well as their, uh, their training and their running? Well, as I say, when I, I talk to a lot of people about this, I, I often say like, well, how often are you barefoot? You know, when, when, uh, when you're at home, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Are you barefoot? If you can, you know, do you take your shoes off? And the amount of people that say, you know, they come home, they take their shoes off, and then they put things like slippers on. And now, I'm, you know, I'm not against, you know, if your feet are cold, but the the whole point is, is that people aren't spending any time ever barefoot. I mean, I I walk around outside, you know, I take any opportunity to take my shoes off, particularly in the summer, because I like, as I say, that feeling of, on the ground, but also then we we you know we forget that we never seem to take our shoes off ever so i always start to encourage people well when you're at home you know if you can take your shoes off take your socks off feel the ground feel that you know even if it's just inside your house so starting to do those things then starting to you know walk around maybe on the grass outside in your garden if you've got that walking around a bit barefoot and then you can start to think about well on the shoes on the kind of road side of things the critical thing about that and it comes back to the kind of cushioning argument one of the reasons that we've gone up in cushioning, in my mind, is because we've gone up as opposed to out. You know, almost all shoes, and this is a frustration. I'm actually, I've been trying to develop my own shoe over the last couple of years because there's very little wider fitting appropriately with shoes on the market. And the, other, the only companies that are producing wider fitting shoes are tending to coming up really heavy. Like I, I am a fan of some of the ultras. Um, but they come up really heavy and, and weight on the end of your foot is hugely important. And so we need to be going for kind of lighter weight and wider at the same time, which almost doesn't exist. So when people go for the, the kind of more minimal shoe, they think of a, a racing flat, which is often narrower and less cushioned. So what happens is their, their wide foot is constrained inside this really narrow toe box. And then what then happens is it feels like there's a higher impact. And the reason it feels there's a higher impact is because you're having to brace with the calf to kind of control your wide foot that's been squashed into a really narrow shoe. So it's almost like your foot has been kind of rounded to fit into that shoe. And so it's very unstable. So actually, that makes you feel like you've got more impact. And I actually came across this when I found that I was more comfortable running in a shoe, one of my, one of my trail shoes that was much wider, that had no cushioning at all. I was more comfortable in that than I was in my one of my racing shoes that was narrower but had a lot more depth of cushion. And I found that the actual feeling of that comfort and that impact was related to our kind of control as we came into land. Is if we didn't need to have to tense the calf to almost kind of point out, you know, kind of point our toes and try to stabilize on a really small area, then we actually kind of reduced that impact because we we felt the ground. As you say, is that when you take your shoes off, you you suddenly have to run 
in a way that allows you to use that that impact to actually use the recoil and send yourself forward and you, you learn to control it as opposed to just trying to kind of cope with it and so that's the thing is that it's starting off to kind of get you know get basically more sensory impacts and the other thing i think is fantastic is particularly at the right time of year when the weather gets good is find a local you know park or playing field that you can trust and and do a little bit of barefoot running on that i think on a nice soft bit of grass if it's safe and there's no glass and there's nothing there like always make sure people do a good walk of the area to make sure that any bit they're going to be running on there's nothing they can step on and i've done that and i've i've done that i did mostly through the summer i do it on a daily basis and i've i've cut my foot once in in almost a decade so it's actually if you're careful it can be relatively safe uh, so they can do a few uh, gentle strides, focusing on good technique and being balanced. And uh, then the next morning, they're going to wake up and have um, sore calves. Is, is that okay? Is that something that's going to go away when they continue at it? Well, that's the funny thing, is that when people do it bare, really barefoot on soft grass, they don't think about form. They just, I tell them just to run, just as if they, was, they were a kid, as if they were just running. Because the sensory input is so great. The brain sorts it out, but also they don't wake up with with tight calves because they don't. They basically the brain is essentially sorts everything. That tightness is normally almost a reaction to having to change something like running in a minimal shoe on tarmac. So yeah, that often happens. So they have to kind of acclimatize that a little bit more. But when they get really barefoot, like completely barefoot, no vibrams, nothing on really soft grass, they often feel like you can you can run forever. And I've actually, I mean, I tested it once when I did a huge mileage week running 20 plus miles every day, way more than I would usually run around a playing field. It, it was very boring. It was around a kind of mile or two circuit. Um, and I actually bumped into Ali, Alistair Brownlee, the Olympic triathlete, on a number of occasions because he was running there as well because he lives just down the road from where I am. And, um, and he would look at me very oddly as he was doing his mile repetitions. And I was on you know, kind of this slightly crazy person running barefoot. But I, could, I accomplished, a, you know, well over 100 miles in a week and without any issues, without any aching in my legs, anything at all, um, just because of that ability to control those forces because of the sensory input from into the foot. So it's quite incredible the effect it can have. But that's, yeah, definitely the, the best way if people are, are, you know, confident and brave. That's the best way of starting off. Uh, and then how do you progress to become a, a badass and do 100 miles a week and uh, minimal footwear because uh, I know for myself I've been I've been doing this for uh, let's see twelve years now I got my first pair of Vibrams in in two thousand six and um, it's you know th- there's there's an adjustment curve that I think deters a lot of people and discourages a lot of people um, and that's you know that familiarity with the soft shoes and then um, maybe picking up an injury because they transitioned too quickly or they made some uh, other other kind of mistake that inhibited their progress so can you give us like a uh, a step-by-step progression from um, starting out you know running a few strides on the grass to maybe one day owning uh, you know all zero drop or minimal drop shoes and just uh, completely rejecting that dated notion of uh, the, the padded shoe scene well yeah that's the thing is that it's it's a lot about not necessarily the running shoes side of things so when i when my clients come in i ask them to always bring or wear their work shoes because that's a really good indicator of what they can they can then deal with. So, for instance, on the zero drop side of things, I'm I'm a big believer that drop plays almost no part 
in particularly in things like Achilles issues and all these things, it's normally a three-dimensional movement, that, that Achilles issue. And it's normally related to a kind of swipe across into the centre, which is normally related to the hip, rather than being specifically the drop. But if they spend their whole day, and men are probably worse than this than a lot of women, because a lot of men's shoes have an inch heel. So almost all men spend their day walking around in the shoe with their heel raised an inch off the ground. Now, if they do that, then they might need to, that's the first thing they need to address. So they need to go to a shoe so that, you know, there's a company probably come across called Viva Barefoot, and they make a range of really great kind of work shoes that are completely zero drop, completely flat, and almost no cushioning. And once you spend a bit of time in those, you start to condition your feet again. So Katie Bellman talks a lot about this. She's got a great book, Whole Body Barefoot, that is all about basically not trying to overthink things, not trying to do specific exercises, just getting barefoot as much as you can and getting in those shoes. And once you do that, after a while, your feet kind of almost wake up again. And then you can start to think about whether you can start want to start to do that on the road and in running shoes and doing something like putting the Vibrams on and getting and just doing a few, you know, maybe just a mile around the block of a really light jog to start to kind of feel those patterns, those movements. When it comes to cushion, it, it's it's like a it's like a balance between the body and the shoe cushion. And you get used to it. I mean, for instance, at the moment, I could attune myself to a cushion shoe for a couple of weeks and then I'll put on my less cushion shoe and it'll feel horrible. It'll feel dead. It'll feel like there's no pop there because I got a cushion. I got accustomed to the cu- the more cushion shoe. And then I can reverse that and do the same thing. I can get used to the less cushion shoe, feel great and feel really locked in. But then I put on the cushion shoe and it feels like I'm on this pillow that's unstable. So it's all about that kind of uh, essentially that conditioning. What I tend for when it comes to the performance side of things, I like people to kind of move towards this, 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 them, for them, it's like a per, kind of perfect shoe. So they have a kind of what their cushioning feels good for them, which for most people is somewhere between about one and two centimeters. So actually it's quite a significant amount, but has the right width for their foot and is completely flat. So it doesn't kind of curl up at the sides and doesn't have a pointed toe box. That's the critical bit is that the toe box needs to be essentially wider and more square. So that big toe can sit in the right position. And that's what you get from, you get that weirdly, even though you've got these companies like Ultra that are creating more kind of foot-shaped shoes. But you get... What are they called? Ultra, the A-L-T-R-A. So they're, they're oh, yeah, Ultra. Yeah, Ultra. So they're more foot-shaped. But if you look at a lot of the Japanese shoes, and also a lot of the companies like Adidas, when they sell shoes in Japan, they are more foot-shaped, or at least they have the space on the inside of the foot. That's where it's critical. So if you look down at your foot, most people have a big toe that goes inwards or goes kind of, it sits inside of their ankle. And that's the critical bit is most shoes cut off that big toe. They point you inwards. And the way I describe this to people is look down at a set of flip-flops or sandals. If you're, you know, if you're walking around a set of flip-flops and sandals, they are, the bottom of the flip-flop is the same shape as your foot. Yet why is a running shoe not the same? So if you if if they basically the flip flops base was the same shape as your running shoe base, like this this pointed toe box, you'd wonder what happened to the bit underneath your big toe, and you'd you'd really struggle. So that's the critical thing is finding shoes like that. But a lot of the kind of brands like um, Mizuno and some of the brands like New Balance that were sold in places like Japan weirdly have that space in that big toe area. So that's what you need to kind of look for. Um, but it, it and not cutting off that big toe position, if that makes sense. Yeah, so a wider uh, forefoot area that looks more comfortable um, is something you can do visually to to check and, and see if you're getting a good a good shoe. 
Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then, and then essentially it's a case of what I tend to like people to do is let's, is, is kind of pick a shoe that's got the right kind of um, responsiveness and cushion for their distance event, bearing in mind that most shoes are made out of either foam. This is another um, criticism of those more cushion shoes. They will compress during the length of a race. So they'll compress after about 10 kilometers. So therefore, if you're doing a marathon, you don't want a shoe that's going to be ultra minimal, that's going to compress too much. Because by the end of the marathon, it'll be dead. And it, they lose their kind of pop, if that makes sense. They lose that springiness after a certain amount of cushion is compressed down. So oh, that's of- also true with the life of a shoe where people say, um, you know, 500 miles is, is about it because the uh, the midsole compresses or something. Yeah, exactly. That's why if you talk to someone, like I remember talking to Zach Bitter, and his favorite shoe at the time was an Ultra uh, 1, uh, one I think it was 1 version 2, which had a very squishy sole. But he said he, he loved them. After about 500 miles, they compressed down and became really great pop. And really, and that's that kind of feeling of that responsive feeling on the ground. And Ultra's, one of Ultra's current shoes, the Escalante, does exactly the same thing. It feels like this kind of big squidgy thing for a few hundred miles. And then it compresses down just the right amount. The other thing people don't realize is that those shoes actually change over a course of a few days. So what I tend to tell people to do, if they want ultimate, ultimate performance for a race, is they have, a, they have two shoes that they basically get used to the one shoe, the two exactly the same. They get used to basically that shoe in the lead up to the race the week or so before. Then they put their race shoe on, ready to go on kind of race day. That is a kind of fresher version, if that makes sense. So, and it avoids that kind of compression that happens over a day-to-day basis. It takes a couple of days or a few days for some of these shoes to kind of re-kind of basically pop back up again. Oh, so... I'm a little lost because you have this Zach Bitter shoe that he's run 500 miles on to to get it uh, compressed down uh, and and be functional for many more miles beyond that uh, because it's it's um, no longer uh, squishy. Uh, but then, uh, what's the difference between that and um, something that you don't want to you you don't want to uh, race on? Ah, uh, so yeah, so yeah. When I talk about it like Zach, is that that's bringing something down to the kind of like, sort of shoe like that compresses down then it's good for a kind of longer distance and stays at that whereas when you often have like a, a 5k or a 10k shoe is what i mean is that they often people have like a racing fat they like um, but then they'll wear it for a few days for the race which is great but it'll lose that that almost that pop and that responsiveness that they get from the gun on the kind of shorter races like the 5 and 10k because that's where you tend to choose a shoe that's got a bit more responsiveness to it if that makes sense so you got a bit more kind of like you're landing and you kind of feel the ground a bit more and you kind of spring off it to, to gain that recoil. Uh, so you work with clients uh, individually, and um, what kind of uh, stuff do you do when you're observing them, or what kind of drills or uh, other uh, assignments do you give to them where they can, over the long term, improve their technique? Well, I'd say I tend to start off by doing some really basic movements. So people at home can do this. They can. I want to stand in front of a mirror and just stand on one leg. So if you think about, you know, what running is, going for alternating one leg to the other, or if you're running a long distance event, and a lot of people cannot stand properly on one leg and balance and hold that position for more than a few seconds. So I get them to do really basic movements like that. And what I, the one thing to look for, so if you look in the mirror and, and do this, if, you, if you're at home and you're listening to this and you've got a mirror handy, 
watch what happens. What's the first movement that you do as you stand on one leg? Most adults will sway their body weight and then lift their leg. So they'll move their body weight first, then they'll lift that, they'll use that sway and their body weight shift to lift their leg. And this gives an indication they have, they've lost the ability of their pelvis to kind of hitch. And if you get a younger child to do it before they spend a lot of time sitting, they'll actually, without knowing it, they'll hitch their pelvis and use that to bring the leg off the ground. And it's a completely different movement and they don't sway the way an adult does, but it's a really good sign that when you run, you'll cross over into the center. So we start to look at those kind of things and look at things like, you know, how do they squat? You know, doing a bodyweight squat is a great window into how you, this is a, but Joe uh, Kelly Starrett's work, um, the kind of supple leopard and the, the ready to run books by Kelly Starrett. He sets out this idea of standards about the fact that, that if you read ready to run, which I think is one of the best functional running books that, that exists, because it doesn't talk about running form from a, a way of, right, you need to run this way. It talks about it from a perspective of if you can squat like this and with this nice controlled deep squat, then you've, it shows that you've got good back control and movement and glute control and those kind of things. And so I said, you know, we tend to look at that and then, then look at them on the treadmill just to get a really slow motion image really, really as they come into land, that kind of key moment as they come into land, are they stable? You know, is there, do they twist around their spine? Do they, they cross in the center? Do they throw their elbow out to try and balance some weight that way? And it's those little nuances, those little things that people, they often say, oh, yeah, so-and-so says that I, I, I kick my elbow out. That's actually a sign that that hip isn't switching on the way we want it to because you're having to kick the elbow out to try and offset some weight that way. So then what we then do is hop people up and then and work on trying to switch on some of those muscles, like the, the, the kind of muscles that tend to just, become really dormant like the glute medius is a great example doing really small exercises like hip hitching but really really slowly and really kind of mindfully and then get them to learn how to squat and those things and then they do that for you know for maybe a few days or a few weeks and then it's quite miraculous and then it gets them to basically switch those muscles back on when they run because it's almost like you you showed the brain that those muscles are there they're ready to go so that's the kind of thing that I, that I tend to focus on. Yeah. Now we're getting into some serious stuff, man, because switching those muscles on and off when you run, that's the difference between you at mile 20 and the bloke that, that passes you and has a form that resembles what, what was happening in the early stages of the race. And uh, as the listeners know, I'm, I'm big on high jumping. And I was talking to this uh, performance coach down in LA and uh, telling him uh, pretty much showing off with all the uh, the drills I do uh, during the day like at my stand-up workstation where I'll stand on one leg and then extend my other leg out to try to form a 90 degree angle with my legs and do the uh, you know the typical ballet dancer drill where you're kicking out back and forth you know extending from the knee and I'm all pretty competent at those. And then he said, well, those are great. Uh, why don't you show me, uh, stand up on your, on the balls of your foot, you know, so, so, uh, one leg off the ground, just gently raised off the ground and then go up on the balls of your foot and, uh, hold that position. <laughs> and I was all over the place. I could not even, I mean, this is kind of like the drunk driving test where they ask you to raise one leg off the ground and do something. Um, but when you go up on the ball of your foot, it's a very, very difficult thing to do to just stand there with the other leg, you know, gently, uh, gently off the ground. And he says, oh, so if you're high jumping and you're taking off, you're exploding off the ball of your foot and you can't even be stable in a rested state <laughs> doing nothing. 
you realize that your your maximum propulsive force when you're asking the maximum from your body, um, you have difficulty balancing uh, even even your own body weight. Not to forget about ten times your body weight. So I think it's a real eye opener, even for an ultra runner who's trying to plod along and do a fifty mile or a hundred mile. If you can't hit these basic checkpoints, then you stand to benefit tremendously from just staying home, uh, forgetting about the you know, the next 90 minute run and doing 15 or 20 minutes of mobility, flexibility, balance drills. And, uh, in the primal endurance mastery course, we have great segments from, uh, the former Lakers strength and conditioning coach, Tim DeFrancesco, where he's doing an assessment and examination of your competency on these basic things like stepping up from the ground onto a chair with one leg and looking for that sway that you just described. And then when you lower back down to the ground, looking and seeing if your knee can track straight over the ball of your foot or whether it's wobbling around uh, like, you know, like a, a deer that's losing their legs in the in the Bambi movie. Um, and it's really, um, you know, it opens you up to a whole new perspective of what training is all about and where you can get your peak performance gains beyond just increasing your mileage. Uh, Kelly Starrett talked about that really nicely in the videos too, where, you know, the endurance athletes have this mindset that, um, you know, Hey, or his quote was, Hey, I got to work in record time today. Uh, I, I beat, you know, 30 minutes for the first time. And they, they think only in that one dimension. And they forget to mention that they sideswiped, you know, a few parked cars and ran a few red lights and, and broke all these rules, which, you know, down in the long term, you're going to pay for it. So um, this is, you know, this is some valuable stuff. And I think uh, just try, trying out some of those basic drills can, can really do a lot for not only injury prevention, but in, improved performance. Yeah, no, no, I definitely agree. And the other thing you mentioned there, and the absolute goal that you mentioned, was about you saying that you were doing these drills and doing these things while you were standing at your workstation. And that's the critical thing. It's one of the things I really kind of go in with people on this is that we are all busy. You know, we're all trying to live these lives where we have, you know, if you ask somebody if they could create some time for something, you know, create some time to maybe, you know, go to the gym or join these clubs. They always they always find a way not to do it because we have these lives that are packed full of stuff. But that's why I like people to think about these things as, well, you can do them as you're around your everyday, you know, around your house as part of your everyday routine. So I start people off with doing things like, so for instance, one of the first examples I give is the, so I, I'm building my coffee, uh, really, really into my coffee. I roast my own beans at home. You know, I'm that into my coffee. And I have something on my, my espresso machine that any coffee aficionado that's kind of listening will know exactly what I mean. It's got a naked portafilter. And what it means is that unlike having the little spikes on the bottom of the coffee portafilter, this has, you can see the, the espresso forming. If you don't know what it is, just Google it. You'll see exactly what I mean. But the whole point is, is that in the morning, that's one of the first things that I do. And I have to, in order to be able to see it forming properly, I've got two options. I can either bend over or I can squat really deep and watch it for 30 seconds as it's forming that espresso. And that gives me a stimulus in the morning to do my deep, you know, deep squats and get my hips working properly. So that's the first thing I do. And then when I walk up my stairs, if you're, if you're a runner and you just walked up your stairs, you've wasted an opportunity to work on your hip extension. And yet you go down to the gym and do step ups. Well, it's like, well, you, you have stairs. So every time you walk up your stairs, you walk up them at two or, two or three stairs at a time, working on that hip extension. And it, so all these little things start to add up. And then you do things like you start to do, like, you know, I, I've thought about even more advanced things. So I, um, I have uh, one of these cordless little hoovers 
that who was the, the vacuum cleaner. I and I basically I take this this cordless Dyson vacuum cleaner, and I have to clean almost the whole house with this just on its own. So without the without the long pole, without the uh, the extension on, and I basically clean all around the bottom, kind of everywhere in the house, without coming more than a meter off the ground. And that works on your hip mobility because you have to kind of lunge and move those hips around. In that, and you know, people talk about like Katie Berman talks about learning how to crawl again. You know, learning how to do those functional movements because those are the things we've lost. When you get those back, you start moving. You know, the you know more primarily. You start actually retaining or getting back, sorry, that, that movement and that control. And that carries across into your running. It switches on all those dormant muscles that are so, they become lazy because you, you sit a lot. And because when you stand, you stand on your, both your legs and you don't ever stand on one leg. And you don't ever use any of those movements. And so it's starting to bring those into your kind of daily life as much as you can. Because if you can do that, it not only saves you time, but it means you don't have to go through the rehabilitation. I mean, you don't have to go to the physio and, and see anybody or, or have to, to rehabilitate an injury because your, your, your body moves the way it should. So that's the way I like people to think about it is how they can get these little things into their daily life. Like habits, it's all about those little habits, movement habits. Yeah, we have those habits with food. We have them with our personalities. We need to get some movement habits back in, good movement habits that, that mean that we don't have to do necessarily do all the extra work. And then, then sport and all these things just become, they just become normal. They make us, they, they're part of what makes us human. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm so excited about this because I, I too have that same mindset where, you know, chores are maybe not the funnest thing. Maybe I'd rather be out golfing or something. But um, when, when I envision the, the, the project of, let's say, just mopping a, a common a floor throughout a house, um, you can get down on your hands and knees and do this prolonged uh abdominal plank where you know a moving plank with your hands actually mopping the floor and doing a way better job than any mop because you're putting way more force into it and getting down to those those berry stains from that smoothie you made a month ago uh, but it turns it into a workout same with the staircase whenever i see a staircase i sprint up it just in uh, in the course of uh, uh, being in the home or, or uh, visiting someone else's home and it's just it's a fun challenge and it totally changes from you know this lazy american mindset that or, you know, across the developed world where we keep inventing more and more conveniences uh, to make us move less. And it's, um, it's compromising our health and the progress. Um, and, you know, even watching a show and, and vegetating for, for two hours after a long, busy day is fine. You deserve it. You're allowed to. But I feel like um, if I kind of motivate myself or I program myself to get up every once in a while and do a set of, you know, uh, 50 deep squats, then I can rest from those and even have a more uh, rewarding experience that I just did something and I can relax again uh, on another level than just kind of plopping down there and not moving. So, um, and anyone who's an athlete, I mean, a normal everyday person, this is really relevant to but if you're an athlete and you're training for an ultra or a, a triathlon experience, and I, I, I've said this on the show many times where I make fun of myself from um, that, that lazy athlete mentality where, you know, back in the day when I was training really hard and, and competing as a professional, I would routinely drive to get my mail, which was six-tenths of a mile away at the mailbox and drive home instead of, instead of walking there or pedaling my bike because there was a steep hill involved on the route 
but it's such a ridiculous notion to think this guy that just rode 84 miles that day is now driving uh, over to get his mail. And that uh, type of behavior carried over into um, all different areas of my life when I was an athlete where I wasn't that active of a guy. I wasn't doing the, the, um, the Dyson vacuum strategy where I was building my hip flexors. I was just vegetating and, you know, good for one thing and one thing only. And that was, um, you know, the, the triathlon events, but, um, had I been working on a farm and doing like Rocky Balboa and Rocky four, where you're doing everyday chores, um, that arguably could have contributed to me being a better overall athlete due to just having a better baseline of physical conditioning in general. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and that's the thing is that you just, I mean, when you talked about the kind of comforts, that's what the cause of a lot of problems. We've got this, this short term kind of comfort searching for this, um, to try and these, all these enablers, you know, the car, all these things. And it's not to say necessarily that they should, the, the whole world should, you know, kind of take those away. But I remember hearing a really, really interesting quote. I think, I think it was Joe Friel, the triathlon coach that said this. And he said one of the biggest problems with, you know, one of the causes of, of things like obesity and all those kind of things is your TV remote. And that was an example of something where, you know, you used to get up and change the channel and those things. But now it's all remote. And that you think about that with everything. Everything has become, as I say, the, the, the vacuum cleaner that means that I don't have to scrub the floor. It means I can just very lazily push the thing around. And as a result, we've, you know, we've actually... You know, we, we're not burning anywhere near as many calories in those. And it's it's not about necessarily, you know, this whole idea of exercise more and eat less is wrong. But it's more of a case of move more because you move the way you should. You do all those things that if you use all these comfort aids and all these enablers all the time, you don't use running or walking as a transport. You know, you drive everywhere. It soon adds up. And that's one, I think, one of the main problems is that, you know, people, we need to essentially, we, you know, we're designed to move. But the other thing is that I say to people, what does it feel when you sit in that office chair, when you sit in that sofa, after a few minutes, what does it feel like? And it, they always say the same thing. It feels like you don't want to move. Your brain has this, this almost this drive. It's the same way that it has this drive to find calorific high. You know, if you listen to Stefan Guillenay's work on the hungry brain and the neuroscience of of hunger he says it's almost impossible really to you know to uh, understand uh, the kind of hunger and why we've got problems now without understanding that our brain is a primal brain designed to try and search for food in you know in you know in a, in, a, in, in a world now where we've got so much food availability and the same thing goes for the body and the brain and comfort is i think there's probably some evidence that that we were meant to try and conserve energy if we could i we were meant to take a chair if we could um, because it never would have been available. And therefore, we conserved the energy for when we needed to run after something or or run away from something. So therefore, when we sit in that chair, there's almost something in the brain that says, stay here, stay here in this lovely, comfortable position. Don't move. It's okay. And you know what it feels like. You just don't want to get up again. You don't want to get up. You don't want to move. When you move, you want to move more. That make you know that I think that now that's how it feels for me anyway. I think it feels with a lot of people like that. Oh sure, and they have um, you know studies of uh, the obesity population where they just don't have that um, that that natural inclination to move. It's sort of a vicious cycle where um, and and um, uh, uh, Gary Tubbs had that nice quote in his book Why We Get Fat: um, Gluttony and sloth are not the causes of obesity. They are the symptoms of obesity. 
In other words, you know, you look at someone who's um, lazy and out of shape and you think that they're, uh, <laughs> that they're out of shape and you think that they're lazy, but the truth is they're exhausted. And the reason they um, overeat and become obese is because their appetite is out of control, because their appetite hormones are dysregulated, because they don't exercise enough, because they're exhausted, because they don't have energy in their bloodstream, because they're insulin resistant. So um, this is a I think a really important concept to embrace, not necessarily just the obesity population, but the athletic population. And um, Katie's quoted extensively in uh, the Primal Endurance book, talking about uh, endurance athletes and their, quote, lazy athlete mentality. Um, I, I preface the section saying that this is a really nice lady and she's trying to help you. So take take her suggestions in good spirit. But we are among the laziest uh, members of the population because we proudly pat ourselves on the back having uh, accomplished our 30 miles a week of running or what have you. But when you compare that to, um, let's say, uh, a service uh, industry person like uh, a waiter or waitress walking many, many miles during their shift and, uh, you know, balancing assorted different activities that require uh, physical output. Um, the, the person who puts on their shoes and runs straight ahead with bouncy, cushiony shoes and poor form for 30 miles a week is well behind on the, um, you know, on the, on the accomplishment of work scale and the overall general fitness scale. So we have to kind of open our minds up to the the importance of just uh, those examples that we mentioned, like sprinting up the stairs, or I, I like to hop one-legged up the stairs, hold on to the railing if you're not, you know, competent, but do fun stuff that uh, makes you feel good right there in the moment and builds upon it to uh, be be more active person rather than less active. Forget about your workout routine for a moment and just look at everything else, all other things being equal. Forget your workout routine how can you become a more active, more fit person in, in, in general life? Well, yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, I remember there was a, a program um, over here or not very long ago, and they actually looked at this this idea of um, what essentially, you know, they had, they had three different families who did three different things. One family just sat around on the sofa. One family did high-intensity exercise. And the other family just cleaned the house. And they're working out what basically which burned more calories. And it was the, the, the family that cleaned the house. Because they, they just moved a lot more. And it wasn't, you know, when the exercising group did their exercise, they then spent every other hour sat on the sofa because they were so knackered from having done, been to the gym and doing the exercise. So it was all about just kind of moving more. And, you know, actually, the family that then did the clean the house had, a, had more fun because they all kind of did it together. It was a, became a big family activity and all those things. So, I, I mean, I say it too often with things like my, like occasionally, um, I talk to kind of Ironman triathletes, like they, you know, they, they, when they're building up to doing an Ironman, they, they have the whole, you know, if you're not doing it with your family, then you're not doing it. Really. You're not, what is the point in spending a year basically almost having no contact with family because you go out for long rides and runs all the time and you never see them. So rather than going for a long run, maybe on a Sunday, go out for, a, you know, five, six hours of walking in the hills. Because actually at the end of the day, in an Ironman marathon, you want to, be learning how to spend time on your feet and actually that's much better way of integrating with your family and it's it's all about you know that sport is meant to be fun it's meant to integrate it's meant to bring people together not to you know not to make people sing you know single people out and make them lonely and solitary you know that's the thing i think all of this has got to integrate and i think that's the thing is everything you know it's all about balance and balance with life and i think we we think about that and we talk about it a lot but do most of us actually really do it 
you know, we have these things we, you know, we go, you know, really, we do our exercise, we do our work, we do all these things. And it's like, well, maybe if you, you know, if you walked or ran to work, then you could run home from work and spend the evening with your family as opposed to driving home from work, getting changed, going to the gym, doing your training, <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Yeah, how about, uh, how about driving around the parking lot looking for a close space when you're going to the gym? That's, I mean, some of this stuff is, uh, ridiculous, but it, it does happen. I think, um, I knew we were going to get into some good stuff, Tom. We got into that importance of movement. And um, before we wrap up, I also want to talk about uh, some of those things we exchanged emails on, uh, one of them being that uh, interesting work by Dr. Sachin Panda, as heard on the Rhonda Patrick podcast about this digestive circadian rhythm and the idea that not only do we have light and dark, uh, we respond to light and dark cycles for sleep and wake patterns, but we also have this uh, internal clock in our digestive system that affects our ability to uh, digest food and, and uh, create energy and feel alert. And uh, some of the stuff that we were talking about was this idea, this concept of um, kickstarting your digestive circadian clock uh, in the morning to um, trigger the uh, production of energy and alertness. And then on the other side, and this is a big one that... Um, uh, Dr. Panda has uh, done in his studies showing the the correlation between uh, obesity in, in laboratory animals and eating after dark. Uh, the, on the other side, for humans to pretty much wrap up our our eating and our uh, digestive work uh, when it gets dark. Yeah, no, I think it's it's some really fascinating stuff because the stuff that he's started to produce or the lab started to produce was that. And a lot of it's in, in it started off in kind of mouse models. The thing about this stuff is that it often, you know, when we have mouse models, it's, I mean, I've done a lot of work with that side of things. And sometimes it doesn't apply at all. And sometimes it gives an idea of, well, it could apply to, to, to us bigger mammals. And actually, he's starting to show that it really does apply. This idea that actually, you know, we, we are one of the main problems we have. And he, he started doing a study, and um, I think it's called My, My Circadian Clock, where he was people would take pictures of their food and basically put together an idea of when they were eating. And the remarkable thing he found was that, and what is an eating event? An eating event is some kind of calories or caffeine or something along those lines. He basically found that we were eating basically for almost kind of eight, 16, 18 hours of a day at least, and that we only were not eating in the dead of night. And that most people were having these things almost right up to bedtime. And then again, the next morning, you know, right from the get-go. And he was basically found that when you re- reduce people from that down to about 12 hours of eating, which isn't, you think about it, that's that's eating from, let's say, you know, having a coffee at six and eating dinner at six. So it's not really a big deal. But so it suddenly made their, their metabolic issues almost melt away. And the reason I think it's so important and the reason I think they believe and the stuff that they've been studying, particularly with the mouse model, it's all related to things like mitochondria. So you talk about... Um, insulin resistance well i believe insulin resistance and the way that it's described is a bit like a party in a cell basically and it's going a bit out of control and insulin resistance is that gatekeeper to basically not allow any more party goers back in so if you don't ever have those time periods where you're not eating then the, the cell gets overloaded and when it gets overloaded with energy you get you don't get your mitochondrial repair so you start getting all these these diseases that are you know even everything from cancer and all these other diseases are related to mitochondrial damage. And they're basically showing that when you have this time period where you don't eat, you actually repair everything. And the way I, the analogy I always like to think of is it's a bit like a, a furnace. You know, I'm looking at my fire at the moment, my wood-burning stove. 
Now, if I was burning that all the time and it starts getting cracks in, I can't fix it while it's still burning. But if I can let it go out, I can fix it and then it'll burn better when it's burning. And it's the same, and they actually show with these mice that they can actually increase their endurance exercise by dropping them to nine hours eating instead of 12, because it just allowed more mitochondrial repair, which allowed more, you know, basically that's the essence of, of improving endurance performance on a cell level. And then the other side is I started following a guy called Bill, um, I'm going to butcher his name, but Bill Lagakos on, on uh, Twitter, who started introducing me to this idea that we were meant to eat to our circadian rhythm and that when we have, when we skip breakfast, we shift our circadian rhythm to later on in the day and that actually we're better off having a breakfast and then maybe finishing, if we do intermittent fasting, we're better off fasting from say four o'clock, four or five o'clock in the evening to the next morning as opposed to basically doing the way that most people do it, which is missing breakfast because actually, and I, and I started to notice and we discussed about this, and I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it because I think men don't often like to talk about things like testosterone and those kind of issues. But I was finding that I was having a lot of, you know, my testosterone and things like that were dropping for no apparent reason, um, even though I seemed to be doing all the right things, eating all the right things. And I was also finding that I was getting lots of kind of problems with um, acid reflux later on in the evening at night because the reason that's happening or the reason I worked it out is because when you get past about, you know, your circadian rhythm in the evening, I, you're kind of, when it gets dark and you're supposed to be resting, you can't really digest food very well because actually you don't, it's, there is good evidence that you don't produce as much digestive enzyme, you don't produce as much stomach acid, that you actually, you don't, um, you, your melatonin that's then starting to ramp up starts interfering with your insulin. And actually they've shown that in the evening you're, insulin, you're more insulin resistant basically, because your melatonin interacts with that. So it gives good evidence that we're not really supposed to be eating big meals later on in the evening. And so I started shifting that. So I started having but breakfast instead, which is something I'd, you know, I got out of the habit. I was, I would always, I'd always skip breakfast because I saw skipping breakfast and having just a coffee and going out and training as a kind of sign that I was well fat adapted. So I would just keep doing that. Um, but then I actually found that it's it, it had a remarkable change in that things like my testosterone came back up again. I started sleeping a lot better, sleeping through the night, absolutely no problem at all. My reflux went away. All these things happened because I shifted that eating to the earlier on in the day. And as I say, this uh, Bill Lagakos, he's under um, he's called, he's uh, written a book called Calories. Um, I think it's Calories Proper. He goes under on Twitter. He's a fantastic person to follow because he's done a lot of this research and uh, it's really practically applicable to a lot of people, I think, anyway. Wow. Yeah, that's some good stuff. Um, well, there's a lot of information there in one go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially the morning uh, fasting, which we talk about so much in the primal paleo and keto community as a, you know, a badge of honor or a sign that you're fat adapted. So um, it's it's possible that uh, like we've talked about many times, especially in my shows with Dr. Tommy Wood, that if you're trying to reduce excess body fat and kind of fine-tune your metabolic flexibility, that the fasting um, has has a good place because you're training your body to, you know, uh, kick into, uh, you know, upregulated uh, fatty acid burning and even ketone production if you're not getting external source of calories. But if you're not in that camp, 
um, you know, I found with this experiment that I've been doing at the behest of uh, Dr. Tommy and Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, that, you know, this morning green smoothie um, full of nutrition and also perhaps waking up my digestive circadian clock to give me uh, kind of a, a boost in energy and function in the morning um, works well for me. And also it curbs my appetite to the extent that I, I really don't need to eat much um, for long periods of time during the day. So I'm kind of back in the same boat where I was, let's say, if I fasted until noon and had my compressed eating window that Mark Sisson talks about so much where he's eating almost all of his calories between 1 p.m. and 7 p.m., for example. Um, I know Brian, who's mastering these recordings, uh, is a big fan of having that breakfast and then uh, going for a long period of time without eating and or eating the final meal of the day kind of early, like 4 or 5 p.m., and then allowing the body to um, rest and recover and rejuvenate as it should during the evening hours and during the sleeping hours. And I know uh, Mark and also Dr. Art Devania have bantered about this concept that, um, uh, quote unquote, anyway, paraphrasing that um, perhaps we're most human when we're not eating. And that's when we're uh, optimizing our immune function, our cellular repair, uh, the autophagy, the apoptosis, you know, taking care, cleaning house, rather than being in this... Um, constantly overfed state where we're accelerating cell division, accelerating the aging process, and compromising things like cell repair. Because we have so much food, the body's not prompted. There's no stimulus to be efficient with the calories that we consume. No, exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing is that what we often forget, and going back to what I was saying about if you listen to the work of people like Stephen Guillenet and the brain side of things, is we, we're just not meant to be in this world where, where we have ability to have food all the time. And that the problem with that is that, you know, at the end of the day, the problem we have often with the food side of things is food is just really good. You know, like, you know food tastes good. Otherwise, we wouldn't eat it. And so, you know, it, when we talk about processed food and obviously processed industrial food has been designed in a lab to do that. But then also, so is things like really good food that you cook yourself. At the end of the day, I cook some really great food and it makes you want more food. It makes you want more of it because it tastes so good. And I think that's the thing is that when we're surrounded by food all the time, you know, when it comes into an evening, you know, we, we would have, we probably wouldn't have had food available at the time. We would have been, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have maybe, it would have been too much of a risk because having that, you know, being in that situation where we were actually more vigilant and those things for predators and all those side of things is that, I mean, but it's really interesting when you talk to someone like Bill, he'll tell you that basically eat to light, you know, move and eat to light. So, you know, in the summer, you can actually seemingly eat later on to, in towards the evening without any problem at all because it's light. And that's the, that's the funny thing is our circadian rhythm, these things change. And it's the same thing. We, the thing that drives me absolutely nuts at this time of year when it comes to athletes is the ones that this time of year, they're still getting up at ridiculous o'clock in the morning to get to the pool when all their body wants to do is sleep. Because then they wonder why. It's because in the winter, you are probably meant to sleep more. You know, we have more darkness hours. We're meant to rest and recuperate. We're supposed to be, you know, going on a bit of a hibernation to, you know, basically, and there was, I can't remember who, who it was, but he was on the, I think he was on the Ben Greenfield show relatively recently, talking about the idea that in the winter we are supposed to, you know, regenerate. So we're not supposed to be going, you know, all guns blazing. So actually have more sleep in the winter, maybe have nine or 10 hours if you can take it, because that's what's supposed to happen in the summer. I mean, I find... When I'm well-tuned, I, I wake up to the sun. So in the summer, I'm up at 5 o'clock in the morning. In the winter, it might be 8, eight o'clock. 
And I'm really, really lucky. And I remember listening to, uh, uh, I can't remember who it was, but they said their, their epitome of their successful life on a career perspective was the fact they never need to set an alarm clock. And I'm quite lucky that I'm in a sort of similar boat in that I get up to help my wife get to work. And, but generally I'm, I'm flexible enough that if I, if I can sleep more and in the winter I sleep more, I can, because I think it's quite important. I think those are the things that you know, contribute to the kind of longevity side of things. So I like my athletes to, you know, take it easy a bit in winter, you know, do the training when it's, when, you know, do a little bit less. And then when it comes to summer, that's when they can really start thinking about it, you know, and start doing a little bit more around work and those things. So it's all about working with your body. And I think it goes for both food and, and exercise on those kind of things. And I think that's how, you, that's how you stick in these sports for a long period of time. And that's how you end up getting the goals that you want in the end, you know, in five years, as opposed to this kind of burn out and then fade away really quickly and hate the sport or hate, you know, doing exercise and then you have weight. Right, right. I mean, uh, sleep more, maybe even add a few pounds of body fat, especially if you're an athlete, because maybe you've been running on, you know, that, that edge of that envelope during the season where, um, you're, you're really lean. You got a lot of stress hormones going through your system. So allow things to bottom out. I know that, um, when I was, uh, the years that I was racing on the circuit, I'd get home from the final race in December and I would sleep for 12 hours every night for probably six weeks and do very little exercise and just eat a lot of food, um, get quote unquote out of shape. But I wasn't really out of shape because when I gave my body that rest and then came back and started training for the next season, um, I'd have a reserve of energy where I was very soon performing uh, right at my best before I took the extended break that supposedly is supposed to get you really out of shape. So, you know, have the courage to do it. It's what your body wants. And then uh, another note to point out is that uh, wherever you live in terms of your latitude, uh, the the disparity between your winter habits and your summer habits are even more severe. So if you're talking about from, uh, you know, the the British Isles, you're talking about, um, you know, a, a huge difference in the amount of daylight between middle of summer and middle of winter. If you're uh, in the Caribbean, in the equator area, you're not changing your, you're not varying your sleep or your activity habits as much year round. But for most of us that live in that swath of, you know, from the, uh, the, the 38th to the 50th parallel or what have you, um, we're talking about a pretty significant difference between uh, both sleep duration and exercise habits if we're trying to align with our genetic expectations for health. Yeah, definitely. But the thing is, is people forget that you know, these things come round every year. And actually, you know, if you really want, if you know, if you really want to get to Kona, you really want to do those things, you've got to think about it as a five, ten year goal. You know, that's the you know, Lionel Sanders did that. You know, he he stayed, you know, he he trained hard for years waiting for this this moment to happen and he worked hard at it for years and years and years if he'd wanted it straight away it never would have happened and that's the thing is that i mean just going back to what you just quickly what you were kind of saying i've got a little quick story i want to say about the kind of weight side of things is that last year around the middle of the year i was really unlucky and got a bad food poisoning and it was not good at all and i spent a week not really being able to eat properly and i dropped um you know i'm i'm six foot one and I was about 70, just over 70 kilos. And I dropped to the mid to low 60s. So I was I was looking pretty bad. And I tried to put the weight back on, but it just wouldn't go back on. My body had gone into reaction mode. And this was about three three or four months before what was supposed to be my big Ironman race. I was doing Ironman Wales. It was going to be a big event. And I, But I, I couldn't help but think, because Ironman Wales is so hilly, that, well, maybe this is an advantage. 
because I was suddenly back to my kind of weight that I used to be when I was a pure runner. And I was running really fast because of this weight loss. But I would find that I'd run really fast one day and then the next day I'd be in bits. And it would happen again and again. Whereas when I, you know, normally I run a lot and I would be okay running every day and running quite a lot every day. And I started to notice I just couldn't, you know, essentially I was just not really recovering well enough. But I thought to myself, it's still, this could be a good thing. This could be a good thing being lighter. And I went to the race. And if anyone that did Ironman Wales last year knows that basically about halfway through the bike, it became an absolute monsoon. The temperature dropped down to ridiculously low numbers in a very short space of time. And I had nothing on me. I had no weight. I had no fat. And I ended up being pulled from the race with hypothermia and spending the whole rest of the day underneath a blanket in the medical tent trying to recover because they wouldn't let me leave because I was so cold. And that happened because essentially I'd, you know, I, I had tried to put my weight back on, but I'd stayed very lean. And so that's the thing is that sometimes you don't need to be that lean. Sometimes it is, as you say, it's better to be a little fatter. Sometimes it's better to put a little bit of weight on when your body is supposed to. You know, if you eat well and you move the way you should, then you'll have that variation. In summer, you'll become very lean because you don't need to be as, you know, you don't need to have the insulation. It, it becomes more of a natural thing. Yet we've kind of completely changed that with our way that we're, you know, we, we feel like we have to be like this all the time. So I think that's, you know, being confident that those things, you know, it's all about being healthy more than it is about being a certain number on a scales. Tom Hughes, way to close it. I appreciate those comments. It's given us a lot to think about. We got into a, uh, a good groove and hit a lot of points for general uh, success with endurance training and, and preserving your health and uh, optimizing with your environment. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Uh, let's see if we can check on you. Do you have a website where you can go to try mechanics or where should we find you? Yeah. So I've got a website, which is uh, www.trymechanics.co.uk. Um, so that gives a bit of information about kind of me and the, the company. That that There's a few blogs on there because I used to do a lot of blogging. So I'm gradually getting them across onto there. Um, but I do a bit of podcasting as well, just because I like to basically talk about all these things. So there's a Try Mechanics podcast that a lot of those are just me talking about different subjects, trying to answer questions and those things. Um, and then Twitter on there is Try Mechanics um, again and, um, and Facebook Try Mechanics as well. So it's basically TRI Mechanics, mostly all one word or sometimes TRI Dash Mechanics if to make it more complicated. But generally that's where I am. So and any, you know, feel free to always ask me questions and things. And um, I try and DSA do some podcasting just to try and get some of these things out there, really. Love it. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, listeners. Have a great day. Da, 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 da. Hi, this is Brad Kearns to tell you about Primal Endurance Online Multimedia Educational Mastery Course. And what we have done for the past year is basically bring the book Primal Endurance to life with a series of videos and other multimedia educational material, audio, ebooks, all accessed at this online portal with everything you need to succeed in endurance training. And if you're trying to do this stuff, if you're enjoying these compelling challenges and trying not to get sick, injured, burnt out, fried, this is going to help you approach your endurance goals in a healthy, balanced manner and promote your health rather than compromise it. Get away from carbohydrate dependency and progress toward fat adaptation. It's over 120 videos, many with the experts and also many others with 
the step-by-step instruction of what's in the book. So if you're too busy to read or you'd like to have a more comprehensive learning experience, check out Primal Endurance online. You'll have everything you need there at primalendurance.fit.